0: And welcome to the Falling Star Wrestling Podcast. Today, the subject on discussion is WWE's party event of the summer. That's right, SummerSlam 2022. I'm your host for the show today. I am one half of the Disaster Artists, and I go by many names. Some call me Patrick Vincent Crown. Others call me the Aerosol Assassin, but I prefer the clean and simple P.V.C. Today, I'm flying solo on this podcast, so there's no Jimmy to tag in when things start to get a bit rough out there by myself. Now, I've had plenty of singles matches in my career, but this is the first singles podcast, so I hope it's not going to be too painful hearing me talk to myself for an hour about WWE. Jimmy is fine, don't worry, we're still on good terms, and we will have to be because this very Saturday night, Falling Star Wrestling is returning to Outwell at the Outwell Village Hall for a night of live professional wrestling action where the reunited Disaster Artist will be taking on the team of Robbie Lewis and his tag team partner, the highlight reel in spandex, Ollie Cole. Now, I've not had the chance to wrestle either of these guys yet, so I'm really looking forward to standing side-by-side side with Jimmy and facing each of these two guys and what they can throw at us. Join us in Outwell on Saturday 6th of August. Another giant match scheduled for Outwell is the returning Chaos Makers Big F and Joe and the Human Explosion Brett Semtex taking on the biggest tag team in Europe, none other than Big Dave and the bulk, the UK Pitbulls. It's going to be outrageous, so don't miss out. Falling Star Wrestling will be back at the Westland Sports and Social Club for our monthly fight night on Saturday 13th of August. We already have a huge tag team match planned when Bobby Adams and Rashwood, a.k.a. The Sound, finally get their chance to face off against Falling Star Wrestling's resident psychos, the Norfolk Legion of Pain. You cannot miss this one. All right, that's enough for me talking. Let's jump into the podcast discussing SummerSlam, which, now thinking of it, it's just more of me talking. Anyways, enjoy! So WWE were back with their most recent premium live event. We were back this past Saturday for WWE SummerSlam. We had eight matches and five titles on the line and plenty to talk about. Do forgive me. This is the first time I'm performing on the Falling Star Wrestling Podcast solo, as I mentioned in the intro there. So it's probably going to be a little bit quicker, a little bit more rapid, probably less kind of babbling on. No offense, Jimmy. But we're going to get straight into the action and we're going to talk about the opening bout of the evening. Now, uh, understand that SummerSlam was in this giant stadium, and this will come into effect later on because when it happens, you have giant stadiums like a WrestleMania or something like that. There's a really, really, really long entrance ramp, and sometimes that can impact things, but we'll get into that later on in the podcast. So we had the Raw Women's title match, which pit Becky Lynch versus Bianca Belair, the current champion. This was the first match, and it was a showdown for the Royal Women's title. And if you recall, it was about a year ago when Becky came back, and she took the title from Bianca in 26 seconds. And I do personally think that WWE missed a bit of a trick here, because it felt like that maybe was a bit of an afterthought, like... They could have done something really exciting to kind of play into that story a little bit more and have Becky hit the manhandle slam like within 26 seconds and then have Bianca kick out and then start the match there. But they mentioned it in the in the pre-roll, in the intro, and I think they mentioned it on commentary a few times, but they didn't go back to it. And I I would have thought if you'd have taken the time to sort of almost build this rivalry for a whole year from SummerSlam to Slam you don't kind of have that as, as a factor. And I know they went on to do different things with Becky. Uh, I'm guessing she's now possibly a baby face after it's all said and done. We don't quite know, but, you know, she, she hugs Bianca at the end of the match. But, yeah, I just thought that they could have really played on that a little bit more, in my opinion. Now, the match itself was was pretty decent. You know, when you have two superstars with the the charisma and the talent of these two, it's, it's hard for them to have a bad match. But... I don't really think it was a perfect match by any stretch of the imagination. It was a little bit scrappy in places, but, you know, it does turn out that there was a reason for that. And it, I saw afterwards, I didn't notice it in the match, but I saw it on social media and stuff. It turned out that Becky Lynch actually popped her shoulder out, like dislocated or popped the shoulder out during the match. And it was just amazing to think that I didn't even notice, notice it, like, You normally can notice whether a superstar has injured themselves a little bit, but I thought Becky did incredibly, you know, covering up this injury. And possibly if I went back and watched the match again, I may be able to spot where that happened and, you know, figure out what what she was doing to kind of cover that up. But it wasn't as if she was ever sort of holding back from her normal spots, really going out at it full throttle. So, you know, props to Becky on that one. And just, well, props to both ladies in covering up so well. And that's just, that's a testament to their work rate, their skill, their ability. I've been injured in the ring before, and it's a very, very difficult thing now. Adrenaline does cause you to be able to carry on, because I remember when I was wrestling Johnny Storm for the Limitless title in Deerham, I believe it was. Quite some time ago, I'd previously had a bit of a knee injury, I went out there, I was wrestling Johnny Storm, it sends me into the corner, I do an up and over, I land, my knee goes 90 degrees the wrong way, and I'm sitting there going, oh my god, the match is kind of five minutes in, we're the main event, we kind of have to do a little bit of time. So in my mind, that kind of panic, that sort of fear, that adrenaline just kind of took over. And and to think about actually having to do that match again, with with my knee in just such pain, it, it I don't know how I got through it. And and to come out the other end of the match, still being able to walk, and then just collapse, you know, just clutter in the into the backstage area and just lay down and just think, what on earth has just happened out there? Was it good? Was it bad? Was it covered? Did people know? Did people think I was just selling? I'm not quite sure. And I can imagine that was what. Well, was going through Becky Lynch's mind there, just insanity, just seeing your your shoulder just out of its joint and thinking, this is SummerSlam, like this is the the number two or three show from WWE, you're in the opening contest and you have to go out there and just do it for the ladies, you know, these two are just incredible wrestlers. And in terms of the action in the ring, there was the the usual spots by both Becky and Bianca Belair with Bianca Belair peeling off a, a really sweet looking Spanish fly off the top, which was really, really cool. And then she followed that up with an emphatic KOD, kiss of death. Yeah, I think that's what it's called, right? For the win, the the kind of amy horror sit-out slam thing. She jumped into that one. She nailed it. She, boom, Bianca beats Becky Lynch in the opening bout. And what I noticed, and and this may be due to the injury as well, which uh, I didn't see at that point, but... As soon as Becky lost and the camera sort of panned around to Bianchi, you could kind of see Becky sort of lurking around the commentary table a little bit. And I was thinking, hmm, you know, when you you, you sort of have your worker, your, your wrestling worker goggles on and you spot something where you think, actually, normally when people lose, they don't then get another chance to be on camera. And if they do, they're either kind of going down the ramp, you know, talking talking trash or whatever, or they have to cut a promo or there's another angle. Becky was just kind of hanging around on the the announce desk around the area, and I was thinking, right, one of two things is probably going to happen here. Either Bianca's going to be in the ring celebrating, you know, like she should. She's going to get that big SummerSlam pop. They just had the opening bout. She's still the women's champion, and then, boom, Becky's going to come in and just attack her from behind. Big old beat down just to really, really get back that heat. But that didn't go on. There, there were some other shenanigans afoot, but it wasn't that. Bailey made a surprising return as Bianca was celebrating in the ring, and this was immediately followed by Dakota Kai and Io Sky, formerly Io Shirai. Um, they joined her in the aisle, and then I guess Becky Lynch saw that there was three of these girls coming down to seemingly take out Bianca Belair. And Lynch stood by her side. She was grasping her shoulder at this point, but I thought, you know, she's probably just hurt. She's just had a match. She's selling. She's just been hit with Bianca's big old finish, you know, and that that can rock her shoulder. But yes, yeah, because her shoulder was popped out. But I liked the whole segment, and it created a little bit of interest and intrigue around the War Royal Women's Division. Um, but the one thing, and I mentioned it in you know earlier on, is just this whole. Entranceway. It's like a mile long. Dear lord, it took these people forever to get to the ring. It was painfully long and it it, it affected this segment of the show because when you have somebody come down sort of unannounced and then they want to come to the ring and make an impact, you know. Bailey, her music comes on. I didn't know who it was. I don't recognize Bailey's music, whether it's new music, whether it's old music, I wasn't sure. Uh, She comes out, she's got the the, the Karen hairstyle, she almost gets like a babyface pop but then has to turn that around and just show people she's clearly not a babyface anymore. And then she starts walking down the entrance ramp while she's talking trash to the crowd and, and you know, fake high-fiving people, talking shit to Bianca who's in the ring and stuff like that. And it's just going on, and it's going on, and it's going on. And then she gets to, I don't know, 20 feet before the ring. Bianca's in there kind of ready to think, right, is she coming down to shake my hand? Is she coming down to congratulate me? Is she coming down to beat me up? Right. I need to be ready for a fight. I need to be ready for all things considered here. And then Dakota Kai's music hits and we're thinking, okay, what's happening here? Again, didn't know the music, so there wasn't that kind of initial pop from me. She walks out. Unfortunately, I didn't know who she was either. I know the name Dakota Kai. People seem to be very excited about this. And I think even the commentary team mentioned that she wasn't currently... Uh, under contract with WWE, I'm not quite sure. So, sure, so she pops out, and again she starts marching her way down the entrance ramp, taking ages. It goes back to Bianca in the ring, goes back to Becky on the outside, goes back to Bailey at the at the entrance ramp there, and then eventually Dakota comes up, and she's standing there with Bailey, thinking, "Oh, okay, we've got the numbers numbers advantage here with Dakota and Bailey. Are they going to go in and beat down Bianca?" And I'm thinking, right, so. Becky is still sort of in the vicinity. Are we going to gear up for a future tag team match? Is Becky going to slide in and then they're going to brawl and it all chaos is going to ensue, which which would have been a cool thing would have been exciting. But then some more music hits. And again, I feel kind of bad because I didn't know whose music this was. And this was I.O. Sky and she starts walking down the ring and I'm sounding like a bit of a broken record here. She's taking her time walking down. The ring. I think she's doing this kind of very loose sort of almost fluid thing where she's almost dancing. She's almost kind of looking a little bit crazy and she gets down to the ring a little bit quicker and it it just seemed to go on forever, almost as long as the match. And I'm thinking, why am I just waiting for people to come down to the down to the ring? But I suppose what can you do when you want to fill a stadium with seventy thousand people and have the biggest party of the summer and SummerSlam to have this big fight feel, which it did, and I quite I quite liked that it was in this big arena. There was plenty of people there. It's kind of cool to have this sort of daylight thing going on, and then as the matches start transitioning, you get it gets a little bit darker, and you got the the big big explosions going off around the arena. And I think that's that's kind of nice to have this big fight feel, but to have this giant entrance and people sort of just sauntering down, I think even at certain points, people just got halfway and did their thing and then went back up. But anyway, regardless, it was a pretty solid opening match. Uh, I maybe feel it wasn't best suited for the opener, as... You know, when you're in an opening match, you have to inject immediate excitement into the event, and you have to you have to get the ball rolling in a way that sets the tone for the rest of the show. We've talked about it a lot on the Falling Star Wrestling podcast. If you're in the opening match, you've got to really set the standard. And I think they did. But when you have a match that's sort of almost been built for over a year, SummerSlam to SummerSlam, and these girls can really, really go, and it's going to be a great opener they went in a little bit too quick. And when you try and do things quickly and snappy, you can sometimes you can sometimes get a little bit scrappy. So I think personally, I would have maybe swapped the positions between this match and the sort of um, Undisputed Tag Team match, which happened later on with the Street Profits and the Usos, because you know you put those four guys in the ring, and they're just going to inject excitement, you know, 100%. So that's the way I would have done it, but I, I can't say that this wasn't a bad match because it was a pretty decent match. Probably not one of the better matches, but nevertheless, I, I actually enjoyed this match. Uh, Bianca is still the Royal Women's Champion. We've got Bailey back. We've got Dakota Kai back. We've got Io Sky back in the WWE. And it's going to be interesting to see where they go with this. Uh, In the end, Becky was standing shoulder to shoulder with Bianca. I can't remember. They might have hugged. I'm not quite sure. But there was like a show of respect. So it would seem that possibly the man Becky Lynch or big time Bex has now sort of transitioned into more of a babyface role. Whether they'll keep this up, I'm not quite sure whether she's going to sort of turn on on Bianca and then join this little clique of, of Bailey, Dakota and Io. I don't know, but it's it's something for the girls to do, and it keeps things interesting, and it's, it's better than what happened with the ladies later on in the event, but we'll get to that very, very, very shortly, but we need to go into the second match of WWE SummerSlam 2022. We had the social media star Logan Paul versus the movie star The Miz, and as much as I really, really dislike Logan Paul as a person outside of what he's done, um, I... And, and will do inside the WWE, you, you kind of have to be really impressed with the level that he's managed to get to. You know, this, I believe, is possibly his second match, definitely his second, like, premium live event match. And for someone now that's been on WrestleMania and now SummerSlam, WWE's arguably their, their biggest sort of North American events, he's kind of held his own in the ring now, Logan Paul clearly has plenty of ath- athletic ability and he's got a little bit of a knack for wrestling, too. On the surface, he could he could easily pass as, as a pro wrestler to the, to the general audience. But it's kind of difficult for me to watch any of his matches without seeing him being led around the ring by the absolutely incredible Miz. Like, if you're a wrestler and you've ever wrestled anybody with less experience of yourself or somebody that's just getting into the business you can watch The Miz and go, that guy, that guy is special, because it's obvious, he always gets paired with the people that are new, or the celebrities, or anything like that, and he, time after time, he manages to get such, such good performances, I think about, like, WrestleMania with Bad Bunny, that was just, that was just incredible, and that's all The Miz, and, you know, Morrison was in that match as well, and that was all, that was all just great, so, Try not to sound too much like a broken record, but The Miz is fantastic in this role. He's the right character for this, and he's he's just perfect. He's guiding, he's giving, he's there when you need him to be, which, you know, is needed if you're like a Logan Paul and you have next to zero experience in the ring. And at the moment, like, Logan Paul can do all the fancy stuff in the world. Pull off jumping crossbodies off the top, frog splashes, springboards, blockbusters, which... Is a great start in the business but now he needs to begin to work how to you know really get a connection with the audience because you know wwe marks will allow it for a while and you, you'll find that in wrestling when you've got somebody who is exciting can do high risk maneuvers who has a bit of character around them uh, but but can't really work in the wrestling they'll, they'll get a big pop for those moves and stuff but Once those moves have gone, once he's done his frog splashes and his cross bodies and his flying forearms and all that sort of stuff, you are then left with how to really work a crowd, how to manipulate a crowd, how to get them to where you want them to be. And, you know, Logan Paul has got a really, good, really good foot to stand on. And he, if he keeps at it, which I'm sure he will, he signed a multi-million dollar contract with WWE and they, they're going to try and rinse as much money out of him as they can. And I'm sure likewise as well, he's, he's going to do whatever he can to make a lot of money. I know he's got a lot of money already, but he now needs to learn how to work because... You know, if he doesn't get his character down or doesn't get motivation and storytelling down, he will get lost in the shuffle because, you know, WWE has how many guys? 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 guys that can do exactly what Logan Ball did in the ring. You've got 100 guys that can come off the top rope with a crisp crossbody. You've got, I don't know, several hundred guys that could probably do a really, really nice frog splash. You know, Doing a blockbuster off the top is not an easy thing to do, but I'm sure WWE and even the Indies, AEW, whoever, so many people can pull off these moves, but Logan Paul has this spotlight. He now needs to, to capture that spotlight to, to really push him into the stratosphere with WWE. Do I ever see him as a champion? Mm, it's going to take him a little while. Like, I could could foresee him possibly, if they split the tag titles up, maybe they could put him in a tag team. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on in this match. They could do that. They could possibly do maybe an IC title, they could do an Intercontinental. I don't really ever see him being a WWE Universal or WWE Champion. Maybe after a while, when the crowd kind of gets used to his shenanigans, maybe they'll pop him down in NXT. I could see him possibly picking up the NXT title. I think that'd be a good push for WWE. That'd be a good thing for, for Logan Paul to really kind of get, get his wits about him in terms of storytelling and things like that. But, you know, going back to this match, the story was was pretty simple. The story of the match was the Miz trying to use his veteran experience to control, you know, the less experienced opponent. He also had Tommaso Ciampa with him and Maurice to lend a hand, you know, when the ref was distracted. And the the commentary team alluded to Logan Paul being trained by a mysterious WWE superstar, and that would kind of be revealed by the end of the match to be none other than the phenomenal AJ Styles, which. I mean, for Logan Paul, it's amazing to have someone with that experience and pedigree of Styles teaching him, who will be able to install all the virtues I bleated about earlier, you know, kind of working and selling and all this other stuff. Like, AJ has all that stuff in spades. And that could possibly lead into a nice little story. Maybe we have a little sort of tag team rivalry going on. We have AJ Styles with Logan Paul and then The Miz and Champa. But you know what, I kind of hate the idea of AJ now going from one failed tag team to another. I mean, AJ was with Omos over a year ago, and I mean, he got the tag team titles, and that's great. They worked good together for a year, and then he sort of transitioned out, did a little singles thing with Edge, then they went into the Judgment Day thing, and then AJ teamed up with Bala, sort of doing the club, or whatever it is, Bullet Club, quasi thing in WWE that lasted a few weeks and that kind of led AJ nowhere granted mostly due to Cody getting hurt judgment day being shuffled around Edge kind of being catapulted more into a babyface kind of singles wrestler again but it does seem a little bit like they don't know what to do with AJ Styles they see him as a top guy but they don't see him as a top top guy if that makes sense to you I, I i don't know but anyway logan paul was able to get the win over the miz by hitting his own skull crushing finale after champa was escorted out of the building by aj styles that was kind of the reveal there as soon as aj got champa out of the building people started to put two and two together and then logan was on the uh, on the apron perched pops up nice little uh springboard move there hits the phenomenal forearm well you, you, you can't really say phenomenal forearm. You could say he hits a forearm, which was fine. You know, it was fine. He, That, that kind of told the story that he's been taught by AJ Styles. So that, that makes total sense to me. And do you know what? I'm not the most athletic guy out there at all. I can't do a springboard, so therefore Logan Paul has another thing over me. He's clearly very athletic. He's in good shape. He's got a good character. He can clearly talk. He's super comfortable in front of the camera. He knows to how to get people to hate him. He, he will learn how to get people to love him. So yeah, <laughs> I'm not saying this as somebody who's clearly less talented than Logan Paul, but I mean, it wasn't a great forum, and maybe they're going to build up to that. Maybe that's something that they can work on. And you know, the, the match in and of itself, it wasn't really a bad match in the slightest. Like, Miz did exactly what Miz does well. Logan got to show off some really impressive stuff. He did a big table spot, so he lays Miz on the on the table, goes up to the top rope. Boom! Giant frog splash off the top. He did some impressive, he did an acai moonsault to the outside. He did the, the forearm there. And, you know, WWE... They're not dumb. They are smart putting Logan Paul with AJ Styles, with the likes of The Miz, with the likes of Champa, because you know, between all of them, you have almost every facet of pro wrestling covered. You have the character and heel work with The Miz, who also does incredible promos. Then you have the work rate selling and the wrestling side of the business with with AJ Styles. And then you've got Tommaso Ciampa there, who can really go in there and work. And he's such a good technical wrestler. And he can really just teach Logan Paul how to be kind of tight and and accurate with it, with his wrestling because that's what Tommaso Ciampa is just so good at. So Logan Paul literally has everything he needs to to have to get where WWE want him. They want to. Push him to the strat fit. And why wouldn't you? I'm sure they've put a lot of money into this guy. He's a big social media sensation. He's got millions and millions and millions of followers. And he's clearly passionate about being a wrestler because if you weren't passionate about being a wrestler, you wouldn't go out there and do those crazy table spots and do those moonsaults and those frog splashes and those crossbodies and those blockbusters and look like you want to be a part of it. Granted, he's got a lot to work on, but he... He has an opportunity to throw away. And now, you know, with Vince Mann seemingly out of the picture too, you know, he's retired or whatever. I'm sure he's still going to be there in the ear of Stephanie and Triple H and whoever's going to be there. And they're going to mold him into a megastar. If they don't, then I guess I'll, I'll eat my hat. But anyway, the match was pretty good. And then we led on to the US title match. We had Theory versus Bobby Lashley, the champion. Um... Obviously, Bobby Lashley picked up the US title back at Money in the Bank last month, and this was basically a rematch. And unfortunately, they kind of did a lot of the same stuff at SummerSlang than they did at Money in the Bank, which in some cases is not always a bad thing. The story, however, was a little bit different. This time the title was on the other competitor, and you also have theory with the Money in the Bank briefcase, which... He immediately took before the bell and clattered Bobby Lashley with that. So that was a nice, cool start to, to the match. Adds a little bit of uh, difference into it. But there wasn't really a great deal, you know, to write home about after that sort of stuff. It was a really good out for both guys. And I think possibly this was an end of, you know, a chapter for these two guys. A few things to know: Bobby Lashley is so over. I never really realized or even even believe that bobby lashley could get this over with the audience like they obviously see something in and i couldn't be happier for him like he's getting these massive pops when he comes in he's getting presented in the right way when he wins with the Hurt Lock, people are popping for that he's got this sort of thing with his music where it's like that dun 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 dun, dun and then he kind of pushes his fist i don't know how he'd explain it thrusts his fist in the air with that dun 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 and everybody's doing that at the same time and and that's sort of a sign of people really kind of getting into it not the whole audience was doing it at the same time but you can see different pockets of the audience really get into it it's a, it was a similar thing back in the day in I guess like the Attitude Era in WWE, you would start to see people get more and more over with certain catchphrases, or you'd even see it with when fans bring signs to the ring. You can really start to see a person get over when you see more and more signs for, I don't know, somebody like Kurt Angle or The Rock or Al Snow, D'Lo Brown, Val Venus, whoever it is, right to censor, Stevie Richards. You just see these little pockets of people start to bring more and more... Uh, signs. Now, that's not really a thing in, in wrestling anymore. I don't know whether that's what WWE, they don't want signs or whether that's just such a massive cultural thing back in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, where literally everyone would want to bring a sign and maybe WWE want to kind of control what signs are in the crowd. But, you know, you can't stop somebody in the crowd from putting their hand up in the air or cheering for a certain superstar. And Bobby is is clearly over, and that's just great. You know, he now needs to get some really big wins under his belt, you know, no pun intended, and then I guess somehow get himself back into the WWE title picture again. At the moment, he's he's sort of too over and too big, too strong, too muscular, too good looking, too much of a good worker for the US title. But on the other hand, he's probably not quite there to take both belts away from Roman Reigns. So he's left in a little bit of a quandary. So he can either drop the title and go straight into the, the main title picture, or he can just start taking on all, all competitors, because that's that's a thing with the US title, isn't it? Since, since John Cena sort of put that, that open title thing, that always adds a little bit of intrigue to a belt, what is not exactly the most good-looking belt, is it? And it's not exactly the most over-belt, because... In in my opinion, it's it's always had the kind of it's it's not and it's never been as established or prestigious as the intercontinental title. And of course, after the IC title, you normally have either the universal or the the, the main heavyweight title or world heavyweight title, or whatever whatever it was back in the day. So you've got that kind of hierarchy. So the US title was always decent to kind of start to propel people, but like. Bobby Lashley clearly doesn't need propelling because he's just over and he's great and he looks amazing and he can work and he can sell and he can get people over. And it's just nice to have him away from Omos, having these really clunky matches, put him with somebody really good like Theory who's going to help him get over. Obviously, Theory doesn't need the win. Theory doesn't need the, the belt. He's got the briefcase. He needs everything. Everything he needs is in that briefcase because you're instantly either talked about or you're on the peripherals of a main, you know, world title picture there if you have that briefcase. So, he doesn't need the US title unless they're going to really strap a rocket to him and propel him to the moon and give him the US title and give him the money in the bank briefcase and then possibly cash in and get the, you know, undisputed universal heavyweight world title or whatever it's called nowadays, both belts, the the blue one and the black one. But as we'll find out later on in the match, uh, later on in the show, That doesn't happen, and he clearly didn't take home the U.S. title because he was put in the hurt lock and he instantly tapped out and unfortunately lost his challenge at the U.S. title. So Bobby Lashley got a big win over Theory, and I want to see what he's going to come up with in the next couple of months and or weeks. Now, next up on SummerSlam, we had a no-disqualification match. We had the Mysterios, Ray and Dominic versus Judgment Day. This was the pairing of Finn Balor and Damian Priest with Rhea Ripley on the outside. To me, it was quite clear that there was only one reason for this to be a no-DQ match, and that was to reintroduce Edge at the end of the match, because, you know, he had to go in and cause the loss for Judgment Day. Otherwise, I... I really couldn't see a point in it. Like, it was basically a regular tag team match with a few extra steps at the end. Like, that was really it. They didn't go in there and and be violent and use weapons because this main event had a last man standing match with Brock and Roman and insanity and craziness and chaos later on. So... The Mysterios and Judgment Day couldn't go out there and pull out all the stops, the tables, the ladders, the chairs, the kendo sticks, whatever. They could sort of use a chair, and I'm not sure even if anyone got hit by a chair. I think maybe Ray hit Finn Balor with the chair, which is fine. But it was clear that this match was no DQ, so they could sort of have an interference without... You know, it being a disqualification or anything. So, you know, they they were handicapped. All four of these guys, or five if you want to include Rhea Ripley, they were sort of handicapped in what they could do because of the main event this evening. Now, the match itself was it was all right. I enjoyed watching Finn Balor as a heel because that's not something I've seen before. He doesn't he doesn't really feel quite like the the leader of Judgment Day yet. In fact, this is the way that I would book it. So. I would, now that Edge is gone as the leader of Judgment Day, which he shouldn't have done that because they were doing great stuff and even having Finn Balor join them would have been a really, really cool thing just to have an extra bit of, you know, militia behind Edge would have been really, really cool. So here's what I would do. I would now switch it from Finn Balor being the leader and have Rhea Ripley as the leader because she's just got the it factor and she could easily sort of have these two dudes on a leash metaphorically (laughs) and possibly figuratively, I think that would be a great idea. They all wear black. They all wear a little bit of leather. They've all got this kind of dark, mysterious, dangerous, almost goth motif. Why not have Rhea Ripley be this cackling dominatrix, sort of forcing these two dudes to do her bidding? I think that would work well. And it's not something I've seen before that I can remember. I'm sure there have been sort of leaders of groups that have been women, I think of maybe <laughs> this is a bit niche. Now, do you remember TNA? Not the company; it was Test and Albert, and I believe it was Trish Strass was sort of, or was it Stacy Keebler. I can't remember. You know, let me know in the comments down below. It was one of those two ladies that were were the leader of TNA. I think it was Trish. Maybe Stacy was in charge of somebody else. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> my my mind's a bit fuzzy. Too many chair shots and such. But they had a female manager, but was sort of the forefront of these two, you know, Tester now, but they were they were two big dudes and she could kind of like lead them around the ring and book matches for them and be their mouthpiece. Because Rhea Ripley can talk as well. Obviously, Finn Balor can talk. Not really heard much from Damian Priest. He doesn't need to. He's the giant. He's he's the big guy. He's the heater. And you've got Finn Balor as the as, the, as quasi-leader. You, you definitely could have Rhea Ripley as the leader. And that's the way that I would book it. But maybe... I'm a bit of a simp for Rhea Ripley. But the best part of the match was, of course... The return of the rated R superstar, Edge. He had a wicked entrance with the fire and stuff. But again, I mentioned it. I've mentioned it a few times already. He was just too far away. He was, he's coming out of this entrance. He's looking mean. He's looking fierce. He's looking sort of edgy again. He's not looking like the kind of the gothy Edge with a big jacket. He's just sort of wearing this really <laughs> almost like he, he was backstage and he saw a woman's leather jacket with a few studs on it and was like, uh, can I can I wear that? And they're like, uh, yeah. is it going to fit? Yeah, he's like, yeah, it's definitely going to fit me. Puts it on, can't do the thing up, but he's going, I, I, don't, I, I don't need to put the jacket up. I just need to go out there and look cool. Maybe he put it on but so he wouldn't be burned by the fire. But, He was just too far away. And by the time he got down to the ring after basically running a freaking marathon to get down there, it felt like all of the excitement and the steam had been lost because, you know, he had this entrance where he had to to come out of these stairs and he had to pose at the top with the fire, which looked amazing. It's going to look great on replays. They're going to put that on social media. They're going to put that in video packages and it's going to look amazing. But in that particular time, I was like, I just want Edge to go down there and spear, 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 spear hit people with moves and leave, which eventually he did. But he just had to go down this giant ramp. But thank God they sort of had Damien Priest to meet him. I'm not going to say halfway because it was really, really long, but he met him somewhat up the entrance ramp. And then he got booted. Uh, this is Damian Prieston talking about. And that was good because it sort of injected that little bit of excitement and thrill that you needed. And then I was really pleased that once once Edge got into the ring, it was fast. It was snappy. You just add Edge. Boom. Hits a spear. Ducks a clothesline off the ropes. Hits another spear. Boom. Goes into the corner. He starts getting his little kind of Edge craziness about him. Boom. Hits Finn Balor with a spear. Rey Mysterio comes on. Hits him with the splash. Pins in one, two, three, and that's that's how it was left. Like, they, they didn't really need that no DQ stipulation because most of the match wasn't really... It didn't warrant it being because it was a tag match. They did tag in. They tagged out. And if you're going to think too hard about it, it's like... All right, this is no DQ. I don't have to tag in. Like, what can the ref do? He can just say, "Hey, you're supposed to tag in." I'll be like, "It's no DQ." Like, what do do you want me to do? He'd be like, "Well, I guess I can't do anything." But (laughs) you know, it doesn't matter. It was no DQ. It wasn't Texas Tornado. But on the other hand, they could have maybe have done a ref bump, where I don't know, Finn Balor comes in, he goes to hit. Bray Mysterio with a chair, Dominic Mysterio with a chair. He jumps out the way, does a little spinny thing. Boom, the ref accidentally gets knocked with a, a drop kick or a 619 or a chair or anything like that. The ref is down. Boom, here comes the fire. Here comes Edge. Down to the ring. Big boot, spear, spear, spear. Edge leaves. The referee gets to his senses. Ray comes off the top with a nice splash. One, two, three. Didn't need to be no DQ. Have a little bit of a ref bump in there. Jobs are good. One. But of course, they had the no DQ, they couldn't do the crazy stuff because later on they was going to have Brock and Roman in the Last Man Standing match, and I guess they couldn't do the ref bump because that happened later on, well actually, in the next match with Happy Corbin versus Pat McAfee. So I guess to kind of finish off the Mysterios versus Judgment Day, it was fine. Didn't need to be no DQ. Good to see Edge back. That's it in a nutshell. TLDR, it was all right. Then we went on to Happy Corbin versus Pat McAfee. And again, with the Bobby Lashley versus Theory match, this was mostly recycled from WrestleMania with many of the same spots from Pat McAfee. So, you know, it was really, really, really pleasing to see. And it was a real novelty at WrestleMania when Pat McAfee came out and wrestled Theory and they had the whole Vince McMahon thing and the Stone Cold thing. Like, I'd not seen Pat McAfee in the ring, so it was cool. It was nice. It was... It it was just amazing to see that at WrestleMania. But I didn't really feel that here. Maybe it's because it's Happy Corbin and he's a bit like, "Mm, he's fine. He's very good at what he does. He's not The Miz. Like they've got very similar roles in, in, in the company right now. They're both brash and arrogant heels and they just flaunt about doing whatever they want and they're taking on people less experienced than each other. But The Miz just does it so well and Happy Corbin sort of does it adequately. So you have Pat McAfee in there, who's clearly over. You've got the dynamic between Michael Cole and Corey Graves, like Corey's meant to be friends with Happy Corbin. So he's his cheerleader. Then you have Michael Cole and Pat McAfee. They're apparently best friends. So you have Michael Cole there, like screaming and shouting for Pat McAfee, which added a little something to it because we didn't really get that at WrestleMania. And you know what? Pat McAfee may have all the love and enthusiasm for wrestling in the world, but It doesn't, unfortunately, make him a good worker. And because he did basically the same spots as he did in WrestleMania, I mean, if you didn't watch WrestleMania, you'd probably be really impressed with Pat McAfee at SummerSlam. But I watched Mania and I watched SummerSlam, and they were both very, very similar. So it was, it was kind of a bit nothing. Like he, yes, he's very charismatic. He's very entertaining. And can do stuff like Logan Paul that I couldn't dream about doing. When he leaps up to the top rope, yeah, it looks great. He's got he's got some he's got some flair, he's got some athleticism. You know, he used to be a football player, they keep talking about that. That was a kind of a cool little thing. He can obviously kick because that's his thing. He was a punter, and he can kick people in the balls, and we'll talk about that in a second. But you know, it's it's this weird thing with wrestlers slash not wrestlers, inexperienced people, commentators going over wrestlers and i know it's it's sports entertainment it's fun it's it's a thing where you can suspend your disbelief but i would rather have my wrestlers beat people that aren't wrestlers but again you know pat did have to take advantage of the ref being knocked out for a moment we alluded to it earlier. They could have done a ref bump, but this was sort of a ref bump. The ref got hit. He looked away for a little bit, and then you could you could almost see it coming. Like, uh, Pat McAfee's there. He's sort of in his little football stance. Happy Corbin's like, oh, no, I just accidentally bumped into the referee, and I'm going to turn around and find Pat McAfee there. Oh, look, my, my legs are slightly open. Here, here comes a big boop. Boom, you know. But <laughs> it was just... <sighs> The match itself was just another, like, quote-unquote celebrity trying their hand at pro wrestling, and it was fine. Unfortunately, the finish was really, really badly. So he, he delivered the punt, kicks Corbin right in the balls. That looked really good. They're building that thing up. I would have been happy for him to just hit a stunner a move, anything, Michinoku driver, a claymore, I know he can't hit these moves because they're other people's moves, but instead he sort of goes up to the top rope. Corbin's bent over after he's just been kicked in the balls. And then he tries to deliver this quasi sunset flip slash code red thingy for the win. It wasn't great. I mean, he kind of botched it a little bit, which kind of took the enthusiasm and, and and the excitement out of that move. I mean, if he'd hit it properly, you know, boom, lands on the back, boom, hits the big code red. Corbin does a nice flip back bump, boom, you get that impact. But they sort of landed on top of each other, rolled around into an awkward pin. And I was like, ah, that wasn't that wasn't exactly the excitement I was looking for. And you didn't really have the excitement that you had at WrestleMania, you know, with Mr. Man at ringside, and you know, the stellar heel work from Theory was really missing in this segment. So it just kind of blended into a, you know, another one of those match, which was sort of ultimately forgettable. I will remember Pat McAfee versus Theory from WrestleMania. I'm pretty sure I'll forget Pat McAfee versus Baron Corbin, Happy Corbin, because, I don't know. Pat McAfee, he screams and shouts and goes wild on commentary, and that's what he's best at. So, in my opinion, he should probably stick to that, because he's very good at that. He's... He's he's an okay worker. But the match itself wasn't bad. There was a lot of like selling from Pat McAfee and Baron Corman just being a heel and, and stuff like that. But it was kind of nothing to, to write home about. So out of all of the matches on this one, I could have probably have skipped it, and if I'd have known what I know now, where it's basically just a replica of the WrestleMania match that Pat McAfee had with Theory, then I could be in content just knowing that that match happened, and this one kind of didn't. But anyway, we went on to another match, which I was very much looking forward to. This was another rematch from Money in the Bank. We had the Undisputed Tag Team title match, we had the Street Profits versus the Champions, the Usos, and then in this one we had a special guest referee, none other than Jeff Jarrett. And uh, after the tag team match, the two teams had money in the bank. I was super hyped about this match, and this was one of the main reasons for me getting excited to watch SummerSlam. Now. I'm really kind of gutted that this didn't live up to my expectations, and maybe that's the reason why I had such high expectations that whatever they did here, it probably wasn't going to deliver on the level that I had hoped. Now. I'm not 100% sure. No, I watched all the skits, all the backstage segments, all the video packages because you sometimes need to. When when I only watch the, the pay-per-views or the premium live events, I don't watch Raw, I don't watch SmackDown, I don't watch the YouTube, the NXT, the, the main events. I don't watch all of it. So I like watching these video packages that give you a a sense of why things are happening in this match. I couldn't quite get a sense of why Jeff Jarrett was a special guest referee. I mean... I sort of get why because there was controversy that went down at money in the bank and I guess SummerSlam was in Nashville which is Jeff Jarrett's hometown but in my opinion it seemed kind of weird and a little bit forced but I think, personally, it might have been more interesting not to have somebody that was going to take away the tension from the two teams in the ring. Maybe add, I don't know, a second referee there to cover all angles and then let that play out in the finish for something cool and exciting, because ultimately, you know, that's not the direction that they went. They kind of just went for a generic finish with the Usos hitting their 1D, which is a 3D, um, for the win, and then nothing more or less on top. It sort of felt a little bit lackluster in my opinion. Now, now don't get me wrong. All four guys delivered another great tag team match, but when you have a rivalry this heated and this interesting, and you deliver a match that doesn't seem to sort of further on the story or take it in a new direction, it just feels lacking somehow. And if this match came first and led into the match at Money in the Bank, it would have just elevated that feud in a way that would have made sense you know you have the the kind of the generic finish with a with a, a small bit of referee shenanigans and then you build up to that big money in the bank match where they they were just let loose on that one you know yeah it just seemed like this way round you were sort of booking your blow off match gimmick first and then following that up with a sort of a very straight up match it was it was really weird like like imagine you've got a bitter rivalry between two guys and then Maybe the first or second match is a cage match, and then the blow-off third match is just—it's uh, just a singles match. You're like, oh, okay, I think we've peaked too early. And I think they kind of peaked too early, and maybe this match suffered a little bit, like the Judgment Day Mysterio's match, where they were so, kind of so limited in what they could do because there was so much other stuff going on the event. Whereas, like Money in the Bank, they were given so much time, so much freedom to just go out there and crush it, and they had. Time here, it felt they were maybe handcuffed for time a little bit in really what they could achieve. So, I mean, it wasn't the fault of the wrestlers, it it never is. You always got to side with the wrestlers. It was just kind of the booking of the segment, and I guess the nature of SummerSlam as a show when you've got eight matches, five title matches, you've got shenanigans in in quite a few of the matches, you've got a last man standing match plus a no DQ match, then you've got almost like two quote-unquote celebrity matches. You've got Logan Paul and then you've got Pat McAfee. Like, it was a bit of a stacked show. And I feel like this match was maybe hampered just a little bit by that one. But nonetheless, it was a very enjoyable tag team match and the Usos picked up the win to retain their undisputed uh, tag team titles and they took them on and I guess they'll face on all comers. I don't know who they're going to face next because there was a moment in the ring after I believe it was Angelo Dawkins was pinned with the 1D. Um, Montez Ford was on the outside. I think he'd gone for a suicide dive, got kicked in the head and then dumped into the barrier or whatever. So he couldn't get into the to ring for the save, which I thought was going to be a save because they didn't really do that many near falls. So I thought that 1D was going to be a really, really, really late near fall, but it wasn't. They just hit the 1D, boom. And then Angelo Dawkins and Montez Ford, the Street Profits, are just sitting in the middle of the ring. And Ford is just looking very, very, very disappointed, almost angry at the point that his team had lost. And he wasn't there to be able to save it, which is which is an awful thing as as a tag team wrestler. And of course, you you have a little bit of like if that was me, I maybe would have kicked out. Or if that was me, I maybe wouldn't have got hit by the 1D. If that was me, if that was me, if, 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 is there a chance that the street profits will possibly break up and go and do their thing? There is, there is a high possibility of that because it seems like every time the street profits come out, they sort of mention how good Angelo Dawkins is but they go over the top to mention how great Montez Ford is and how good he's looking and his, his effort in the ring and the moves that he's putting off and just the craziness that he can do. But then they keep mentioning how much muscle he's put on and how good a shape he's looking in. It just makes me think that they're kind of, they're pushing poor, poor Angelo to, to the side to really be like, hey, do you like this guy? Yeah, he's good, right, and, yeah, Montez Ford? And then no doubt they'll probably split them up put Montez Ford in a position where they'll push him for a little while. And then maybe he'll get back together with Angelo Dawkins and they'll do the street profits because I think together they're really, really good. But no doubt, you know, you have to give people a try. I just, I just feel like half the time when you've got a tag team and they're really, really good together, and then they just break up, and they, and one of them turns on the other one, like, that's kind of a missed opportunity. There's not many tag teams that just sort of split up amicably, are there? You don't really have it in the middle of the ring where you're just like, hey, we're not really good enough. Like, we've been tag team champions before, but maybe we've lost our step. Maybe we're not good together. Maybe we need to go our separate ways. And WWE normally achieve this by having a brand split, and then they put one person on Raw, the other person on SmackDown, and have them split up so they don't they don't have to go into a feud because that can also sort of lose people's steam, especially if they've got steam as a baby face and then you have to have one turn on the other and then you just have that kind of lackluster thing. I think back to Edge and Christian. When they were a tag team, they had just so much momentum and then they had to have Christian kind of turn on Edge. Then they had to have a rivalry for a couple of months to sort of get that over and done with. And then by the time that sort of Christian had lost his, his heat, for being a heel for turning on Edge, he wasn't really in a position to be pushed into into the stratosphere. And obviously, Edge did manage to turn it around and become one of the biggest solo wrestlers in the world at that time. So obviously, it worked out really well for one of them, not so much for the other one. I mean, Christian was always a a high caliber player, but sort of in the mid-card. He did some amazing stuff in TNA. He's doing some great stuff in AEW now. So no doubt the guy is very, very talented. But... Yeah, he never really got the push that maybe he was hoping from that big split up between between Edge and Christian. But no doubt they'll probably do the same thing with the Street Profits. They'll probably lose again. Montez Ford will get angry at Dawkins. Dawkins will get pinned again. He'll be like, "Ah, oh, you're not as in shape as I am. I've been trying hard at the gym. Look at all this muscle I've put on the commentary team. Keep talking about it. I'm so charismatic. People love to look at me. They're not looking at you. You know, you have to wear a you have to wear a singlet to cover up your dub. Like I do all the cool dyes. I do the big frog splash. I do the cool moves, the cool kicks, the cool springboards, the cool cross bodies. What do you do? Boom! They break up. Montez Ford goes on to." I don't know, maybe wrestle for the US title for a while. And if he can really perform in that singles role as a heel, then maybe he can go on to um, sort of bigger and better things. But that remains to be seen. A little bit of a tangent there. Next up on SummerSlam, we had the SmackDown Women's title match where we had the challenger, Ronda Rousey versus the champion who won the belt back at Money in the Bank, Liv Morgan. Now, unfortunately, the best thing about this match was it was short. Other than that, it was messy, sloppy, and it kind of seemed like the two ladies in the match had just forgotten how to work a wrestling match like it was it was the blind leading the blind and i've seen better matches in falling star wrestling featuring trainees like i think back to the match that that jj king and robbie lewis had uh, uh west lynn a few weeks ago like they're two very new guys but they look more in control especially robbie like calling these spots and stuff i didn't see that kind of ring general in the ring between ronda and Liv. so maybe it's that kind of weird thing of like I assume, I don't know Liv Morgan's history in the wrestling business, but I assume that she is the more experienced one in there. But with her being a babyface, you can't always lead, you know, a less experienced person. I mean, Ronda Rousey's been around for a couple of years, so you would would hope and expect that she would be better than she is now. She is obviously more so a talent than she is a wrestler. She's got some good moves. She's obviously got a, a lot of caliber about her people look at her as a former UFC champion and things like that she can go she can make people tap out she can punch and knock people out and that's great but when you've got two baby faces in there who don't really have that much kind of heat they're sort of working together but they're not really working together that really well it just kind of got a little bit a little bit messy like there was a point there I think one of them went for a pin and then the shoulder wasn't down, then they kicked out, and then they tried to do the same pin again because then they needed to get into a kind of a cradle pin, which, went, which by all accounts, was nicely transitioned into a Rings of Saturn by Liv Morgan, which is cool, kind of taking the submission game to the submission specialist. But because you had to do it again, and the first time it just looked so awkward and clunky and awful, once you do it the second time, you're like, uh, okay, yeah, I get what you were going for. It would have been nice if you'd have nailed it the first time. But anyway... The match and the angle itself achieved what it set out to do. Liv Morgan gets a win over the the giant superstar Ronda Rousey, but Ronda Rousey also has a legitimate gripe with the referee's decision, because the finish was basically... Ronda Rousey was getting Liv Morgan into the the cross-arm breaker, the armbar, quite a few times in the match, and the amount of times I thought Liv Morgan was going to tap out, because it's one of those moves, once you cinch it in, There's nothing really else you can do unless you're going to go for this kind of valiant baby face where they can just overcome the pain and get to the ropes, which she was sort of doing and it it worked until the point where Ronda gets in in the middle of the ring. But then Liv Morgan manages to get her shoulders off the mat. She gets into a a vertical position and then Ronda Rousey's uh, shoulders are being pinned to the mat. One, two, three. We think that Liv Morgan has won legitimately, but unfortunately whilst Ronda's shoulders were on the canvas, Liv Morgan was tapping out at two. So I guess technically, you know, I guess technically Ronda Rousey was the winner, but because the referee counted the pinfall, didn't see the submission, legitimately Ronda Rousey lost because whatever the referee says is final. So I guess fair play. There was a little bit in the um, video package where Ronda Rousey was like, right, if you can beat me, I will shake your hand. If I beat you, I want you to do the same thing to me that I did to you at Money in the Bank. You beat me legitimately. You pinned me, got my title, but I turned around, gave you a hug, gave you a gave you a shake, and then this sort of went into the into the finish. Ronda Rousey is not happy about her shoulders being pinned to the mat because, you know, while she's got the arm breaker in, the the arm bar, she's looking up at Liv Morgan, Liv Morgan taps, so Ronda Rousey has no reason to take her, one of her shoulders off the mat. So she has a legitimate gripe and then basically just turns around and brutalizes Liv Morgan. So I guess Ronda is now either a heel or sort of transitioning into a no-nonsense ass kicking pissed off baby face. Whatever she is, whatever she wants to be, I'm down with that because I think that suits her way more than her kind of awkward, smiling, happy, clappy role that she's been doing for a while. In my opinion, it just hasn't worked. I don't think the audience are latching onto it. I don't think she really believes it in herself. Like, she is the baddest woman on the planet. Let her act like it. It's like... It's what the people want to see. Like when Becky Lynch was doing the man thing, that's all they wanted to see. They wanted to see her go out there, take no nonsense and kick people's asses. Now she transitioned into the big time Becks thing, which she got over. Now, maybe she'll go back to being the man. I don't know. But this is the kind of thing that people want to see from Ronda Rousey. They want to see her go out there and kick and punch and elbow and mutilate and judo throw and just make them tap out. That's what people are excited about. Let her act like that. It's what the people want to see. You can be a face. And also be an aggressive one and an ass kicker. And people just love that stuff. They they lap it up. Think of think of Stone Cold Steve Austin. He was never a generic babyface. He went out there, he beat people up, he flipped people off, he drank beers, he rode a truck around, he went about on his little UTV thing, he swore, he drank beer, he spat at people, he gave them the the Stone Cold Stunner, and people absolutely went wild for it. Brock Lesnar, another guy who's now transitioned into that babyface role, but he's doing something different now, but he still keeps that integral character of the beast incarnate. He doesn't look, well, he, he kind of looks like a different person because he's got his little man bun, he's got his, his his beard, and he sometimes wears a wears a flannel jersey, and he looks like a farmer, and that's great, but he's still got the core principles of what makes Brock Lesnar Brock Lesnar. You've got The Undertaker as well, who's gone through so many transitions, but because he's an ass kicker, he takes no names, he just goes out there and gives the people what they want. They love it. He didn't need to go out there and clap hands and smile and be happy. He does what he does, and people just loved it. So I'm hoping that they'll take that sort of route with Ronda Rousey, let her be a bit of an ass kicker, and we'll, we'll see how they go from there. But all in all, this match wasn't great, but thankfully. It was short. And then we went on to the main event of the evening, the WWE Undisputed, the WWE Undisputed Universal title last man standing match. We had the champion Roman Reigns versus Brock Lesnar, the beast we were just talking about, the beast incarnate, the hillbilly crazy farmer guy in a last man standing match. And even before this match went on, I knew it was going to be chaotic. I knew it was going to be violent. I knew it was going to be entertaining. And that's exactly what they delivered. Now, if there hasn't been a reason for you out there to tune into SummerSlam, you're listening to this review because you like the sound of my voice or you like to listen to people talk about wrestling, but you haven't actually watched SummerSlam because you can't be bothered because they're four hours long. And, you know, you like to listen to, I don't know, an hour of me talking about SummerSlam. That's absolutely fine. But if there's one thing and one reason to tune into SummerSlam, it's this match. Even before the match started, we had Brock Lesnar driving a giant tractor down to the ring. And you just knew from this point on, it was going to be special. And boy, did they deliver on all fronts. We had two legitimate superstars in the ring who went out there to literally just kill each other. Well, not literally, but almost. I mean, we had chaos, destruction, interest, fun, violence, and we had a wrestling ring and we had a wrestling ring that was completely destroyed so let me set the stage here so we've got roman reigns in the ring and we've got brock giving his sort of own introduction to the match whilst being perched on the top of a massive tractor so this tractor's got this sort of like it's not a forklift i don't know what it's like a dumper thing you know what they have diggers for where you can pick up dirt and you can dump it out so he he drives the tractor down the entranceway, and you know, that took ages because he's trying to maneuver around all these fans and trying to not to run them over, and, <laughs> and that was just crazy. Parks up pretty much level with the ring, he's not far off the ring, raises up this dumper thing so it's it's hanging over over the ring, and then just jumps out of the jumps out of the tractor cabin, jumps up to the top of this thing, gets a microphone, does his own introduction, which was great, because that's sort of a play on what Paul Heyman always does with with you know uh, Roman Reigns introducing him as the Tribal Chief, the reigning, defending, undisputed blah blah blah. Brock Lesnar does his own thing with his own acronyms and his own moniker and all that sort of stuff, and then he just launches himself off the front loader onto Roman Reigns in a massive Luthès press thing, and the match starts from there and just gets progressively more and more bonkers and violent. And wacky, they fought all across the arena. There were spots on the outside, there were spots, and you know, uh, in in front of the ring, and then there were spots where they just crashed through tables. They hit each other with steel steps, but neither man would yield or stay down for the count of yet um, for the count of ten. So Brock Lesnar, the lunatic that he is takes matters into his own hands and does i guess what you could call a light spot of farming in the WWE arena there in Nashville he jumps into his vehicle and begins to ram the actual wrestling ring with Roman Reigns on the inside of it what's more Brock Lesnar Brock Lesnar then proceeds to get the front part you know the, the loader the digger the the bit where you put the mud in of the tractor and rams it underneath the ring and hoists the ring in the air this causes Roman Reigns, who's in the ring at this point, to just tumble and fall like a tumbleweed out of the ring and just slams onto the floor, and I'm thinking, What am I seeing? It was it was crazy. I, imagine you've gone to the park with your with your small child and you put them on the slide and then they slide down and just tumble into the into the gravel or into the into the grass or whatever. That was what Roman Reigns did. He just slid down this ring and it looked really exciting and fun and also very very scary this was just a mega like holy shit moment and i just simply couldn't believe what i'd seen i had to go back and rewind it i was just like has he really just rammed a tractor into a wrestling ring and lifted it had to be i don't know i don't know i'm not very good with distance but how how tall is a tractor 20 foot 20 foot in the air, you got this wrestling ring, just a corner of it hoisted into the air, just looking like this odd piece of machinery that had just been crambled and whatever. This odd piece of machinery that had just been just scrapped. I don't know. It was just, it was just, it was a really surreal and just special moment and no matter what this stunt cost wwe in terms of planning execution or the cost of breaking an actual wrestling ring you know that they're going to get this back a hundredfold in the amount of press attention replayability from that clip like It was just crazy, you think about it, we talked about Stone Cold earlier, you got his iconic moment where he drives a beer truck down or he drives a monster truck over another car, gets the milk truck, you've got Kurt Angle grabs a milk truck and, and sprays people with a hose full of milk and stuff like that, and that still gets played now. And this moment, At SummerSlam, this last man standing match that happened between Brock Lesnar and Roman Reigns will go down in WWE history as one of the craziest moments. And I, for one, loved it. But, 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 that wasn't even the finish to the match. We still had more chaos. So at one point, Roman uh, Roman Reigns is down for the count. He's getting counted. He gets back up to his feet. Paul Heyman then starts pleading with Brock Lesnar. He's saying, here, take the tiles. We don't need them. Just don't kill my meal ticket. Roman Reigns, he pays me loads of money. I need this as a meal ticket. These belts don't mean anything. I need Roman Reigns in a fit state so that he can continue wrestling. Please don't kill him. Brock Lesnar's obviously like, um... No. Puts the titles down, grabs Paul Heyman, gets him in the F5 position, walks over to the announce table. Boom. Massive F5 through the table. And I think, I think that's possibly the first time I've ever seen uh, Paul Heyman take a bump and or get slammed on the announce table. It was wicked. So then the Usos come down. They start to get dumped on their heads by, by Brock Lesnar, just giving them suplex after suplex, overhead belly to bellies, German suplexes. Some of them did look a bit awkward. I think one of the Usos did land on his head, and hopefully he's okay. Then more chaos happens. We have Austin Theory. He's sprinting down that long, mile-long entrance ramp. He attempts to cash in the Money of the Bank contract. He gives it to the referee. He hits Roman Reigns with the, with the contract, with the briefcase for a little while. But unfortunately, before the referee could basically say that this is now a, you know, three-way title match, Brock Lesnar then picks up poor theory, spins him around, gives him an F5, he lands on the belts, boom, he's done for. And then this gives Roman Reigns the chance to get the upper hand on the beast. And he's just trying his darnest. Multiple headshots with the belts. But Brock Lesnar, he is just getting up before the count of 10. Like just shot. After a shot, I'm thinking, Lesnar, stay down, man. What are you doing? You're crazy. Just lay on the floor for 10 seconds. It's fine. But the Beast Incarnate, he just keeps getting up. He just keeps getting up until at one point, Roman Reigns has to enlist the help of the, the Complete the Bloodline. They smash Brock around the head with, with one of the belts again. Brock Lesnar's on the floor, and then they just resort to burying Brock under all this carnage at ringside. We had chairs, we had the announce table, we had bits of the ring, we had more chairs, we had more chairs, and we had more bits of table, and it just made it so that Brock Lesnar could physically not get up for the count of 10, and the match was just, it was just a spectacle. It was, it was kind of perfect. Like, Brock looked mega strong and is uber over. Roman Reigns gets to keep his titles and remain the champ, the tribal chief, the, you know, fourth longest reigning WWE champion in history behind Pedro Morales, Hulk Hogan and Bruno Martino. They are clearly putting him up there and whoever manages to take those titles off of him, I think it'd be a really great thing. This just, just popped into my head. How about Roman Reigns just gives up the belts? <laughs> the most heelish thing he could do, just be like, I've had enough. I'm off. Like, nobody is gonna beat me. I'm gonna retire, and I'm gonna be the champion in my mind forever. That was just a bit of a side note there. But this match had everything you could you could have wanted: tables, chairs, steel steps, tractors, everything you could have thought of. Like, and they handled the things that you either wanted to happen or thought should have happened really well as well. Like Throughout the event, they mentioned about Theory having the Money in the Bank briefcase. They mentioned it in the pre-video package. He's like, yeah, like when both of those guys are dead and prone, I'm going to cash in. Why wouldn't I? This would be the best time for me to cash in my Money in the Bank contract to become the Universal WWE Champion. And he had to come down. And he did come down. And it made sense for Roman Reigns to kind of be the the one on the floor, ready to get cashed in on. He was prone. He'd just been smashed by Brock Lesnar. But then Brock just picks up theory. Just boom, he's dead. That's well covered. That's well handled. Then you've got like the Heyman factor in there as well. That was handled well because, you know, even though Paul Heyman is not a wrestler, he's not athletic in any sense of the word, but he can still be a major factor in this match. He can still be there and just cause chaos and, and, and confusion and get in the way and pass weapons to Roman Reigns. So he was picked up and dispatched as well. Then you've got the Usos as well, because they had to get involved. I mean, it was a last man standing match. There's no DQ. There's no rules. You just have to answer the the 10 count before your opponent can. So the Usos had to come out, and then Brock had to overcome them as well. It's just this great story of this babyface who's just an ass kicker, who's a monster, a machine, a beast, but he, he can't overcome all of these odds He just had so much literally, literally stacked on top of him that he couldn't win. So I guess, you know, Roman Reigns is still the champion. He's still got both belts. He's still the head of the table. He's still the tribal chief. And at this point, I have literally no idea who's going to be able to take those titles off of Roman Reigns. Like I said, he could just give them up. That would be a really healy thing to do, but... I don't see him doing that because why would you? You need somebody, a big, valiant babyface that you want to push to finally defeat the Tribal Chief and take those titles off of him. I don't know who it's going to be, but now we've sort of had a change uh, in the structure of WWE and who handles the booking and the storylines. And we're starting to see a little bit of a change in that. We've got Triple H now taking charge of the bookings. We've seen the stuff that he can do with NXT and how great that got at points. I just hope he can bring some of the ethos that he had in NXT over to WWE, create good storylines, build great angles, and just create mega superstars for the future. But who that superstar is going to be, there's only one name that comes to my mind, and it's got to be Cody Rhodes, right? Tell me I'm wrong. Let me know in the comments. Well, I made it my first solo podcast, and I think that went pretty well, don't you? Please let me know by leaving a comment on our social media channels. Both myself and Falling Star Wrestling are available on Facebook and Instagram. That's at PVC Pro Wrestler and at Falling Star Wrestling, respectively. Whilst you're there, don't forget to like and follow Falling Star Wrestling to stay up to date with all things Falling Star Wrestling and find out when we're coming to a town near you. Speaking of live wrestling, be sure to join us this weekend, Saturday 6th of August, at the Outwell Village Hall in Outwell, where we already have two monster tag team matches booked. We have myself and Jimmy, the Disaster Artist, versus Robbie Lewis and Ollie Cole, and then there's the massive tag team of Big F and Joe and Brett Semtex versus the UK Pitbulls. If you can't make it to Outwell, then you just have to get down to the Westland Sports and Social Club on Saturday 13th of August, where we get to see how the Sound will fare against the Falling Star Wrestling Tag Team Champions, the NLP. Now, I think the only sound that will be made that night will be Rashwood's shoulders being pinned to the canvas and the audience chanting one, two, three in unison. Now, before I get too carried away, I'll end up chatting here all night. I just want to say thanks for joining us this week on the show. I really hope you enjoyed the show, and I can't wait to see you at our show very, very soon. In case I don't see you, I'll catch you next time for another edition of the Falling Style Wrestling Podcast. Bye-bye.